Not long ago, I had dinner with some people who didn't know very much about Pomona Valley Church and knew I was a pastor, so they asked me about it. Questions like, so you said you don't really have music. I said, no, you know, Zoom audio can be a little tricky, although we do have one wonderful musician. Hi, Mario, who has done a little bit for us, and we're still figuring that out. They said, and you said you don't preach as long? And I said, yeah, we do these 15-minute sermons, and then we have this time to respond afterwards. And they said, you're on Zoom. And I said, yeah, because that way people can talk to each other and we have chances for conversation. And by the time we did this a few rounds, I think they were just too confused to quite know what to make of us. We were just a little bit weird. And the thing is, as a church, we're not trying to just be weird. We're not looking to just be different. We're trying to respond to something that we think God has asked us to do and be as we have practiced what we call in our community openness. Simply the idea of being open to God's leading, both in our own lives, but also as a group. Now, one reason I love the book of Deuteronomy so much is how it also helps us look for what God is doing among a group. In fact, we're going to see that that's incredibly important. Now, another piece of this is that Deuteronomy speaks to a time when the old normal is ending. Normal is the wilderness for the Israelites. It's coming to a close. The future, while promised land oriented, is unknown. This book is here trying to help equip people for that experience. Deuteronomy and the Pentateuch, which is just the word for the first five books of the Old Testament, also get called the law, by the way. The myth of these Old Testament books is that they're full of lists of rules to follow or else God will be really mad. In reality, they are for Israel to be reminded of their story. A story so true and so powerful, it will enable them to live like weirdos in the land they're about to enter. Chapter 6, where we'll be today, is a section that matches the whole of the book. It gives us then some helpful framing for all that we're going to experience as we walk through Deuteronomy together. And considering that old normals have died in many ways for all of us over the last few years, I think we'll find some encouragement here as well. And so three things for when the old normal is ending. First, when the old normal is ending, remember who you are. When the old normal is ending, remember who you are. God's people are about to turn the page, ending a chapter of wilderness wandering and beginning a chapter in the promised land. And so this is all about preparation, this part of Deuteronomy. They're giving commands, advice, guidance, wisdom. Moses speaks to the people about how to live and who to be. And so in Deuteronomy 6, we hear this. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children may fear Yahweh your God as long as you live by keeping all their decrees and commands I give you, so you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh's one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commands that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And so let's explore this together and consider some differences between Israel then and where we are now and how that can be helpful as we try to enter the story. So first... We need to know a little about families. A family in ancient Israel bore little to no resemblance to a nuclear family today. 
Our families now take many forms, of course, but in all their diversity, they still don't look like a household then, which would include patriarchs, more than one wife, children, indentured laborers, elders, and this group of 50 or more folks would live in close proximity to one another and to their tribe. Their daily life would focus largely on subsistence farming as a collective. We think of those under our roof, which can sound like 50 sometimes, but outside of perhaps special occasions where we gather in extended family and close friends, we don't experience very many similarities here. And that leads to a second point. Ancient Israel is a collective society and the U.S. is an individualistic one. They see themselves as bound to one another in ways that we can really have a hard time understanding. I mean, we likely choose to bind ourselves to some people by choice, but our culture simply does not work under a group mentality like theirs did. This is then reflected in their language, which is the third difference to note. When Deuteronomy speaks to the group, they are not speaking to a single individual who's part of the group. They're speaking to the group. This is not dissimilar to the way Spanish works, where there is tú, usted, and ustedes. In English, we'd just say you. But in Spanish, tú is for you, like a friend. Usted is for you, meant for someone to whom you want to show a special respect, perhaps an elder or someone in a position of authority. Ustedes is you all, a group. Y'all, if you will. The Bible is written then in ancient Hebrew for the Old Testament, ancient Greek for the New, and both of those languages have ustedes. They have a plural you, a group you, y'all. It's a you that is for us and cannot just be for me. And because English doesn't have ustedes and the Bible isn't written with y'alls in it, I need to be careful. Otherwise, I'll read the Bible for me when it was written for we. And all this matters not for understanding the Bible better in some bland academic sense. The fact is that language reflects a truth of culture. In the same way that usted reflects a reality of wanting to show respect, so too this language of y'all is a reflection of the difference of collective identity, of household and family. All of these things together reflect a biblical value of belonging, meant to mark who we are as the people of God. And even now, as we follow Jesus together, we need to live the yallness of scripture, as a pastor friend of mine once said. Without this kind of belonging, values like Pomona Valley Churches, openness to God's spirit among our group, sacrifice for each other's good, authenticity and relationship with each other, diversity in action by honoring God's image in others, they all fall flat. They become abstract goods instead of a way of being. They become tasks we perform when they have the chance to be a way of living that forms us. We're a group, a body, a family. We don't just log into church. We are a church. Our personal uniqueness still matters and we are individually dearly loved, but we aren't just a conglomeration of individuals. We joined a group when we said yes to Jesus. The Bible's language reflects this reality, and what we just see in the snippet of Deuteronomy here is true of the book. When we notice then how the Bible speaks to the group, we can better understand its meaning. Anytime a passage is written to Israel, it's meant to be heard as a group, interpreted for the group, lived out by the group. And so when old normals are ending, remember who you all are. Another thing that Deuteronomy reminds us is that when the old normal is ending, Remember the story. 
The whole beginning of Deuteronomy focuses quite a bit on commands. For example, verse 18, do what is right and good in Yahweh's sight so that it may go well with you. This raises the question, why do the things that are right and good make things go well for the people? Option one is that it's what keeps God from being mad at you. After all, just a little bit above in verse 14, it says, Don't follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. For Yahweh, your God who is among you, is a jealous God, and their anger will burn against you, and they will destroy you from the face of the land. Is face value our best bet here, though? That God's giving rules, wants them followed, and gets mad if they aren't? I'm not so sure, mainly because I don't think God is so arbitrary. And just below the surface, we see another option. God wants them to be faithful to their story. This is not about giving the rules for life. This is about telling a life-giving story. And the story shapes the people. It's a story where God went first to free them from slavery. Not just any God, Yahweh God. It's a story where God sent food from heaven and water from rocks. Not just any God, Yahweh God. God made things right. God made things good. So you do what is right and you do what is good. If you're looking at the references, you might notice, for example, that chapter 6 verses 10 to 12 remind the people that when they get to the land and it is abundant and good, don't forget the real story. They're warning in that case that when the people are surrounded by the goodness, they might forget the good God it came from. And so they are being told, remember the story so that you can live together in a way that aligns with it as people of goodness. When we were together live, we listened to C.C. Winan's arrangement of Blessed Assurance. I think of the chorus. This is my story. This is my song. And what's happening in Deuteronomy, in a way, is an emphasis for the people. This is the story. This is your song. And, of course, if Israel were to sing it, they'd sing, this is our story, and this is our song. As an aside, maybe you'd be jealous too if the people you loved so, so much had experienced all of this and then said, nah, I bet Asherah's got something better on offer. I bet Baal can protect us better than Yahweh. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight is the invitation. You know what's right and good in Yahweh's sight? Festivals with abundant food for everyone. Jubilee, where people are canceled in all their debts and restored to their land and brought home to their families. What's right and good in Yahweh's sight is honoring each other, caring for resident aliens. You know what's good in the sight of the gods of the nations? Think about the story of Elijah, which comes later on with the prophets of Baal. They self-harm. They struggle for hours and suffer as they wait for Baal to answer them. Molech is famous for asking for child sacrifice. I think it's pretty reasonable that God might have an emotional response to the needless suffering of people who wondered if the other gods might do something better for them when this God knows that life is coming from them alone. God is, after all, emotional too. God's not mad about broken rules But God can see how things could be if people lived this story, if people chose life, and God knows how it will be if they don't. We may not always see it now with so much 
of the story being in a book from so long ago. But we are living the story too. The same one. Our lives are responses to who God is, what God's done, how God is among us, our whole regular lives. And so when the old normal is ending, we remember the story, Yahweh's story specifically. And our third invitation from the book of Deuteronomy so far is that when the old normal is ending, you embrace the weird. Chapter 6, verse 20 says, In the future when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws that Yahweh our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, Yahweh sent signs and wonders great and terrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he, they promised us on oath to our ancestors. Yahweh commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear Yahweh our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before Yahweh our God as they commanded us, that will be our righteousness. When your kid asks why, which would suggest the idea that your kid becomes aware that the way you live is different than the ways that others live around you. They've observed that you're a little bit of a weirdo. And they're wondering what's going on. And then, of course, this is just another reiteration that the answer when the kid realizes you're a weirdo is to tell the story. Which just adds an exclamation point to the second thing we were talking about. You know, the thing is that all of these commands are meant to make the people holy. But the myth of the word holy is that it means perfect. And that's not it. Holy is distinct. Holy is different. Holy is set apart. To say God is holy is to recognize that God is not only distinct from human beings, not a creature, but far more. It is also to recognize that God is distinct from the other gods. God is full of life. God is full of power to create. God is able to restore order when chaos seems like it's going to win. There's a scholar named John Walton who actually makes some interesting commentary about that final point, that God's goodness for ancient Israel, was connected to God's ability to order chaos. That in a chaotic world, one of the reasons they believed Yahweh God was good was their power to create order. Which is just a really important difference to notice as we enter an Old Testament story. Because we now largely think of God's goodness in terms of God's ability to bring about human flourishing. They're not mutually exclusive to be sure, but it's just worth knowing that as they think about why God's good, the reasons might be quite different than our own. They're noticing something different about how God would operate in their time and their place. And so God's holiness, the unique identity of our God, it invites our wonder, our praise. It's our hope and our comfort. But it can also help us to remember that God's weird. I mean, why speak the world? When you can battle someone and split their guts open. Why free a people and lead them to an abundant land when you could just make them work for your pleasure and comfort instead? And weirdest of all, why give up anything, let alone a heavenly throne, and become one of those people? And I mean, at least come and be an important one. Like, I don't know, a king. What kind of weird God dies? rather than give up hope on the people they love. And so as we enter the story together, 
we are remembering that we are the weird, unique people of Yahweh God. As we were together live, we took a moment to just think back over our stories and remember a time or two when we have experienced the collective weird people of God. We told those stories, at least in part, to one another. And I hope if you have a minute, you'll be able to do the same now. When have you seen the collective weird people of God? And if you never have, and you're just joining us via podcast, which we're so glad for, maybe you might want to experience our collective weird group. It's what we're trying to be together every Sunday, 9 a.m. Pacific. We'll always be on Zoom. So wherever you are, you're welcome to join in. I close by offering a blessing by Pastor Mark Chase. And so to the collective weird people of Yahweh God, may Yahweh bless you all more deeply than anything that is currently trying its best to curse you. May Yahweh keep you all so strongly and tenderly that you would remember that you indeed do have a keeper. May the face of Yahweh God shine on you so brightly that you remember that the sun came before the storm and the sun will come after it. May the very countenance of God be turned toward you all and would God deal graciously with you, so graciously that it becomes how you deal with yourself and with others. A blessing from Pastor Mark Chase that we receive with gratitude. Amen.